For September 22nd, 2014, this is episode four of the PHP Roundtable. Today, we're talking about web APIs and covering topics like RAML, OAuth, and Hadios. I'm your host, Sammy K. Powers. First person we'll get to is Matt Frost, who wrote a book on OAuth, which is very important when it comes to APIs, so it makes him very appropriate for this talk. And he ran four marathons recently. Is that right? Recently, yeah, in the last couple of years. So you, so you're like really in shape then? Something like that. Nice. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, next guy up, we're gonna hit up Jeremy Lindblom who is a software engineer at AWS. He's a co-organizer of the Seattle PHP user group. And uh, he told me that one time he kissed a kangaroo and I just, I, I kind of need a backstory on that one. <laughs> well, I, I wish it was uh, more entertaining, but uh, I went to a petting zoo where there happened to be a small kangaroo and I actually kissed the kangaroo with the intention that I would later be able to tell people that I kissed a kangaroo. <laughs> where did you kiss this kangaroo? It was at a petting zoo at some fair, I think. I, no, I mean, like, on what part of the body? Oh, on the top of the head, of course. Okay, good. Um, you didn't bring any diseases back then. So. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Mike Stowe on, which uh, who, he works for API. We well, actually work with a company that deals with APIs pretty much every day. Um, so that makes you really appropriate to come on board. And you're also an actor, you say. So what do you do? You're, you're, are you in some Hollywood movies? You know, uh, next year, yes. Uh, there's one coming out. Um, but I just don't think I can top kissing a kangaroo. <laughs> I, I regret that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, all right, and we also have Keith Casey on. Uh, he wrote a book on API design and trained two cats to fetch. I don't even know what that means. Are you familiar with the game Fetch? You throw something, they bring it back? So, I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, teaching cats to do that is amazing because cats are kind of independent creatures and they're kind of a pain in the ass. So getting them to do anything like on command is pretty impressive. So I've had fun. I've done it twice now, so I think I've got a system in place. So if you ever have a cat fetching need, let me know and I'll take care of it. Awesome. Yeah, cats are traditionally very stubborn, so I think it would require a lot of patience. So I'm glad you figured out some sort of method for that, behind that. Lots hey, we're all good at something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, finally, we, I mean, we got a ton of people here. Uh, we got Andrew Carrizo. Oh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Curioso. Uh, I have a pronunciation key, and I think I got it right that second time. There you Author go. of Expert PHP in My MySQL, uh, a book that he wrote, uh, organizer of the New Hampshire PHP Meetup, and really into home automation with PHP, right? Uh, yeah. I wish. No, no. C, C++, not very much PHP. But, you know, APIs, PHP all the way. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, actually, hey, before hey, we even dive in... Am I the only one that hasn't written a book? I haven't written a book. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about to buy some ISBN numbers, but I haven't written anything for them. <laughs> so you and me, Jeremy, we can be the non-book people. <laughs> Solidarity. Yes, absolutely. Um, before we start getting too hardcore into the discussion, I want to hit up a couple of people on Twitter who uh, have been giving some feedback already. For the, in the introduction, Mike Wilbanks um, is asking if Mike ha is wearing a blue bunny shirt. What is your shirt? Okay, so that's uh, that's actually our mule for MuleSoft. It's yeah, it's this guy. Nearly just now, it's cool. Ah, uh, that's a beautiful little mule there. That's awesome. 
Yeah, so not a bunny shirt. It does look like the the Playboy bunny from the top because um, it's being cropped off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Bill Wheeler is saying a much more sober-looking crew on this episode of PHP Roundtable. And uh, yes, we, I think most of us are mostly sober. And then Jeremy uh, Mikola, um, who was on last episode, was reminding us that most people on the Worst Con episode, last episode, were actually sober. The only two really drunk people were me and Phil Sturgeon. Uh, so that was... Uh, Phil was actually making sense, and I was just kind of – I was weird. I was completely useless. So, um, All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, but first, let's get to a definition of whatever an API is. So who wants to take this one? What, it, what would you say, just the, the overview, the TLDR version, what is an API? I'll jump on this one. Um, I, I think fundamentally uh, API in the, the lowest common denominator sense of the word is the way two pieces of software talk to one another. When we talk about uh, APIs at a library level, I mean, that applies that definition. We're talking about REST APIs specifically. We're talking about those that use and follow sort of the REST principles. Um, and there's, there's six to 10, depending on how you want to count them. But there's kind of a continuum in there of how RESTful is something. Um, and it's fundamentally how do things talk to one another. Cool. And you mentioned something about REST, and then we're going to get to that a little bit later. Is there anybody else who has uh, anything, any input on just what a general higher view of API is? Yeah, I, I can go up a few more thousand feet. Uh, so, you know, at a high level, uh, API is a little like a contract. You're, you have a contract between a uh, provider and a consumer, and it's essentially a defined set of rules and language where you talk between the uh, between those two parties. And, you know, I, I like that analogy because there's some things that have to do with, uh, you know, the uh, contract analogy goes a long way in explaining things like, okay, you can do something like break backwards compatibility, right? But you're kind of breaking the contract a little bit. You know, you're, you're kind of not being fair to the other side of that contract and that agreement. So a few levels higher, a uh, few more thousand feet. Cool. Uh, why would an average PHP nerd need to know about APIs? Do they even need to know about APIs? Is it, or is that too much of a broad question? Can you even write a PHP program without using APIs anymore? <laughs> Non-trivial? It's tough. I, I think part of the problem is the way the world is connecting today, where everything is becoming connected to something else. So eventually, if you write an application, you're going to need it to connect to Twilio or to Twitter or to any other numerous applications. You're going to need to connect to other systems, other services. So can you write a PHP application without using an API? Yes. Should you? No, I mean, we should be using API-first design. But uh, as the world grows, I mean, connections is what's what's all about now. Yeah, totally. And, and I feel like maybe a, a developer who's just throwing like, random scripts together might not even know that they're dealing with API stuff when they install a package like the AWS um, SDK, and they're sending files around to S3 and all that stuff. They might not necessarily do any nitty-gritty figuring out what the API is all about. So is there any real advantage to learning how to, to design or, or interface with APIs for just a random run-of-the-mill developer? Well, um, I think it's absolutely necessary to understand how to interact with APIs, um, to sort of have an idea of here are the error states that can come up, here are the problems that, that sort of crop up, here's what success looks like. Uh, I, I think designing APIs isn't necessarily quite as important because there will be quite a few less people designing APIs than consuming them. Uh, like, for example, I spent two and a half years at Twilio. We 
the the team there had probably four or five API designers, but then they had you know 200, 300,000 users. And so those people didn't necessarily need to know how to design the API, they just needed to know how to consume it. That's a good point. You've got two sides of this API story. We got designing awesome APIs on one hand, and we have consuming APIs on the other. And I didn't put the word awesome in consuming APIs because a lot of times dealing with APIs can be annoying. Um, and we'll look at some of those uh, a little bit later. But let's, um, does anybody have any other thoughts on that before we move on to some, uh, going into some more of the nitty gritty, gritty details of what an API looks like? Yeah, I, I want to just point out too, when you, um, you know, when you move to an API from kind of a, a I guess, more traditional persistence type environment with databases, um, you give yourself a lot more flexibility with being able to take your your data uh, into the mobile world, into different, um, I guess, kind of contexts. Maybe is is the word I'm looking for. Um, but you know, when you're when you're interacting with code and data, and kind of a I'll call it a PHP four web application. You know, that's the only place that it's going to run is on that web server, and by um, you know, by kind of separating the, the breaking that dependency with the web server and uh, getting it kind of into an API, uh, you give yourself a lot more options for uh, how you can use that data. So my next startup idea, instead of just creating a PHP website for it, if I make an API that backs that up, I can make, say, a mobile app for it, right? Or like a native mobile app or tie it into some other service. Yep. Cool. So that's yet another reason to learn how to design and make your API to make millions of dollars, basically, is the TLDR version, I suppose. So I, I was going to say uh, something about consuming APIs, um, but we'll probably talk more about that later. But I think uh, one thing that's different about when you're consuming APIs for your data rather than maybe talking through database is that there's different ways. Uh, well, you have to treat it a little bit differently because um, an API it might have real life reliability issues mm. more so than working with your database. So you're going to have to deal with, um, you know, what to do when it doesn't respond or it responds with something you didn't expect. Um, and so sometimes even with client libraries that over the top of an API, you still have some leaky abstractions that come up um, that you have to know how to deal with as a consumer. And what do you mean by leaky abstractions? So that's what I mean is like those errors. So like um, when you talk to a database, uh, most of the time with like our PHP, MySQL, and PDO extensions, the errors that happen, the types of errors are pretty low. You know, there aren't very many to worry about. Um, but with an API, there can be any number of errors defined by the API. And depending on how you're consuming that API, some of those, those, some of those errors could be thrown right up as an exception into your application level. So um, there's different ways of dealing with that and different ways that people design uh, how they interact with their APIs to deal with that kind of thing. Definitely. And I feel like there's been some attempts to sort of uh, standardize the way that APIs return responses, how to handle those responses, and things like that. And I think we'll be talking a little bit about that in just a second. If we wanted to do a quick rundown of what an, a what an API, web API, looks like, um, we look at things like the HTTP protocol. HTTP protocol. Um, we have HTTP verbs like get, put, post, delete. We have HTTP response status codes. We have request and response headers. Uh, we have the body of those responses and requests. Uh, in a sort of nutshell, what does all of that look like and how does it relate to um, API 
at the very bare bones basic API structure. And anybody can take this. Wow, you just started with an easy question, huh? <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's yeah, about using the media question. <laughs> no, he doesn't have a chance doing that. Um, I think it's all about using the medium properly. Um, the, the verbs are designed for very specific purposes and using those in accordance with those purposes. I think the response codes are very specific, uh, using the respons proper response codes. Um, like Jeremy was saying, this isn't just a database application where we can just you know, fire off a request and just assume that it's going to get handled. At the end of the day, when we're talking about API architectures and API systems, we're talking about distributed systems where things like latency come into play, where systems and resources might just disappear and go away, and you never know what happens. Yeah, you have um, to design for failure big time when you're... Yeah, absolutely. And I usually recommend that people design for the failure cases first because they're the most painful, but if you understand the failure cases, success is the easy, the easy one. Yeah, so... Uh, I would like to maybe go run through a scenario of what a typical API request response looks like, and maybe that would be a, a good way to sort of encompass a lot of these ideas. Um, real quick, I'm going to interrupt and say, Lee Davis just said that my mic is totally boss, so thanks. It's a blue snowball, and I got it for really cheap. It was on sale, so that's why I, I've got this specific one. Um, and uh, Jeremy McCullough is still on a pun rage rant. Rage. <laughs> He just is this, said, when working is this with one about cheese? Oh, you know what? I, was, I thought it was going to be something about worsts because that was been <laughs> worse all the time. He says, when working with APIs, proper error handling is no exception. Yeah, that's, that was pretty. I, I don't get it. <laughs> Tell him to give it a rest. <laughs> give it a rest, Jeremy. Give it a rest. We have no more puns. <laughs> Oh, this is going crazy. Um, so who, can anybody run us through like a typical, like what a, we're using the HTTP protocol. Uh, what does that look like in an API sort of request and response uh, scenario? Anybody have a whiteboard? You have a whiteboard? <laughs> it doesn't, you can tell it in the form of a story maybe, like a little puppy went into a house kind of thing. It doesn't have to be necessarily super technical, but just enough that people could kind of get the general idea of like, okay, that's kind of how it works, this request and response. Maybe two people talking, what's involved with that kind of thing, making up a sort of scenario like that on the fly. Well, I think uh, the, the contract uh, analogy was a good one. I think mm -hmm. you've got a service that you're trying to use or consume, um, and it has rules, it has uh, kind of a structure as to how you need to use it. And... Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, the verbs are, for the most part, pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, if you're trying to get a resource from that service, you have to follow the rules that are associated with with retrieving a resource, which is generally a, a get request. If you're trying to give the resource uh, information, you know, typically that's either a, a post or a put or a patch. Um, and then delete, obviously. Uh, but but you have these rules, and generally the API documentation. Uh, hopefully, you have API documentation that explains kind of what you have, what you need to send. So as long as you can send the information in a way that's uh, that kind of fits that contract that the, the service will accept and be able to act on, um, 
it will it will give you back what you asked for, whether it's actual data or kind of a status or a a, a result from information that you might have pushed up there. Uh, and and if, in terms of like a like a web browser, for example, that most people are familiar with, if they're sitting there browsing a website, uh, is there some sort of API type thing going on using the HTTP uh, protocol? Like, what is the browser doing behind the scenes that we don't see? So yeah, at, ahead, at the highest level, it's making the request and it's sending off some headers. It sends off headers along the lines of, um, here's the operating system I'm using, here's the browser, the user agent I'm using, along with here's the content types I can accept. Like I'm expecting back HTML or text or images or something like that. And then the server on the other side accepts that what the what's called as the accepts header. It reads then says, okay, can I respond in any of these particular formats? If it is, then it keeps going. Um, if it can't, then there's a what's called a 415 error. It's a media type not supported. So it can immediately say, look, I don't speak the same language as you, so we need to stop. Um, oh. Assuming that you do speak the same language, then it can go ahead and it can take that incoming request. And, and like, like Matt said, if it's a get, it can retrieve objects from whatever your data store is or retrieve resources and return those back to you. Generally, it would return back with a 200. So if you were making, if you're looking like at a blog post, it would make that request, load the database, load the page, return the body of the page itself, and then return the headers. And that in the headers, it would say 200 okay. And then it would give some information about the server, like this is Apache, this is the timestamp, stuff like that. It also re returned back like caching information. Um, and all the headers are totally transparent to the user. The user never sees any of the headers. Um, what the user just sees is the body, and that's where everyone knows it's you know it's the HTML tags and the body and the the body tag and all that sort of stuff. Cool. Um, and you said no one sees the headers, and those and those are kind of what the browser uses to communicate with the server to figure out what it's getting, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's the communication layer behind the scenes. Using ahead, the API Andrew, is really any different. Oh, go ahead. Um, it's it's doing the same thing as the browser except. Most of the time when you're interacting with an API, you are worried about what the headers are. Yeah. Well, most of the, you know, for the most part, uh, for the most part, a web browser over HTTP is essentially a RESTful API, um, all the way down to having hypermedia to uh, describe, um, you know, to transition through states. And I do not want to be the one who brings up Hadios and has to define that for the first time here. Oh, don't um, you worry, it's coming. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I, I want to try something really stupid for the people who really have no idea about APIs, if that's okay. Absolutely. And if this is terrible, um, then you can cut it out before it gets to iTunes. <laughs> uh, all right, go role play. Yeah, wants to be my server. Come on, volunteers. Oh, I'm down for this. Yay, Mike's yeah, Mike's volunteer. Mike's the server. Yes. He's an actor. He's got it. He, yes, this is true. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, all right, so you are, um, you know, you're a server for let's say a micro message social media service called, I don't know, Chirper or something. That's probably a real startup somewhere, so I apologize for that. <laughs> Everything um, is a real startup. The, uh, so anyway, I, I want to get, uh, get a list of messages from you. Um, let's say a public timeline or what, whatnot. So let's say I'm going to request the, uh, I'm going to request HTTP, 
whatever.com, example.com slash timeline. I'm going to make a get request to that. I'm going to send you a user agent, and I'm going to send you, which is, you know, of course, Internet Explorer, the best browser ever. <laughs> um, and please, no one think I'm serious. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to send you accepts uh, application slash blah semicolon uh, application slash JSON. Um, and you're going to give me back. I wish I could throw a ball at you, like a physical ball, but I probably won't reach. And these are your headers, right, that you're talking yeah. about? This is stuff that people yeah. don't see. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a get request, so it's, only, it's all headers, all headers in the URL. So now the server um, is not being very responsive, so I need to worry Sorry, about that. There, there's downtime there. The, uh... <laughs> so I take it with the server. I say, okay, he's sending me this request. It's a Git request, and he accepts JSON. I can give him back JSON because I have that format. So I'm going to take your Git request, send back the response, send back the header saying this is 200 okay. Here's your data. Have a nice day, and hopefully I'll stay up the remainder of the time. So, you nice. know, so... I'm, I'm going to get back my JSON request. I'm going to parse the JSON. Um, if there's a header saying I should cache or whatnot, I might do that just to make myself a little bit more responsive. Um, and then let's say, hypothetically, I want to send a new message. Uh, if I want to send a new message, I'm probably going to make a post request, uh, post being the verb, to uh, timeline. And that's going to have that is going to have a body of the message in it, and that body is going to be, you know, maybe hypothetically a JSON object with the text of my short little micro message and who I, um, you know, and whatever else. I'm not going to design microservice API on the on the fly. That's not going to work. <laughs> anyway, let's just say let, let's just say post to uh, to. Mike here, a uh, JSON object that has a message in it, and the message is 200 characters long, and you only let me have messages up to 100 characters long. What is that response? What does that response look like? That gives that's a 410. Believe that's a 410 entity too large. Isn't that oh, 410? I like that one. Knows all the status codes. Oh, see, I probably would have done a 400 and just, you know, had a nice descriptive error response, but I like that one better. That's awesome. I think so basically what talking about is there's different uh, HTTP status codes that a server can respond with, and they're just these uh, numbers, uh, and each one uh, has uh, basically a range of what they can um, what they mean. So the 200s, so like 201, 200, 201, 202, those are all successful error codes. That means whatever happened, it was good. Uh, then there's the 300s, which is it has to do with like redirecting and things like that. Uh, there's 400s, which means there was a, an error, and 500s, which means there was like a, a, a really bad error. So there's different ways that a a, a server can respond. Um, so that was that's really thank you very much for that uh, the analogy. That's I think that really helps to kind of for the person who's completely new to API design to kind of understand what what's going on behind the scenes. So um, and so. Uh, from going forward, let's just get a, a few more terms really defined, and then we're going to talk about a couple of best practices with designing an API. Uh, in a typical application that you're designing for, say, like a WordPress website, uh, you have an endpoint, which is a URL, right? And someone goes to look at your blog, and your blog will return X, an XML document, which uh, is called HTML. And the browser will render that HTML and format a nice little pretty blog post all about whatever you're talking about. 
And an API that you might design for some other service to use, it might not return an XML document, but it can return other formats, including a really popular format, JSON. So why is JSON better than XML? I'm just going to throw that out there. I know it's a weighted question. <laughs> it's a biased question, I should say. It's is it? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I know in, in my experiences, and I would imagine in a lot of other people's experiences, it's a lot easier to parse. Absolutely. In the PHP world, parsing JSON is way, way better than parsing, way easier, I should say, than parsing XML for sure. Um, URL versus URI. If somebody refers to a URI, is that the same thing as URL or is there a difference? So URI is considered more proper because it's a uni uniform resource identifier. So it's just an ID that goes along with it. So it's not necessarily a location. Um, so it, it gets closer to like the CRUD concepts of this is an ID for the resource that you're interacting with, not necessarily the location of it. Because the location, you usually throw in like the, uh, the HTTP and the, like the actual domain portion of it. Whereas when you talk URI, it's usually just everything after the slash. So it's V1 API, blah, 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 blah. Cool. Just so, a unique identifier. Nice. Yeah, it's just a unique um, identifier. They're pretty much interchangeable. Excellent. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what makes an API a RESTful API. Um, I can't remember who mentioned REST uh, earlier, but uh, what does REST stand for? What's it mean? Why is, why is it important when talking about API design? I think one of the problems we have as we talk about APIs and you asked how do APIs interact is that there are several different types of APIs. You have your SOAP API, which was like, no, not SOAP. Uh, and everyone talks about REST, but the reality is most APIs are not RESTful. Uh, most APIs do not use CRUD correctly. They do not use hypermedia. Uh, they do not use, you know, very uh, ambiguous endpoints. Uh, most APIs tend to be like RPC. So I think when we talk about REST, it's understanding what REST is, and what REST actually entails in its theory. Uh, so I think, first of all, it's very, very important, not only on the consuming standpoint, understanding how do we use it, uh, but on the design standpoint of what are we doing? Because I saw REST, REST API where you make a post using a query string to get data. That's not, that's not what CRUD stands for at all. That's not how <laughs> uh, so I think it's very that's understood. That's the sound effect, Jeremy. <laughs> I love the sound effect. <laughs> I think it's also you know, important to understand like Hadeos, and since Andrew brought up, um, do you want to explain that, Andrew? Uh-oh, we're jumping right into so, the big- So piece. you're asking me if I want to explain hypermedia as the engine of application state. No. Exactly, okay. <laughs> I'll take <laughs> that. Well, exactly. think, of your, think of your browser. You know, when you make a request to a web page, you're getting HTML. That's dynamic, that's hypermedia. Uh, and one of the key principles of REST is let's send hypermedia back. So whether you're sending like uh, links back so that uh, your application can be dynamic, you're not just sending back stack body of text, you allow the application to be fluid and react to the data that you send it. Um, in a nutshell, I think that's a quick explanation of what Hadeus says. It's, it's easier than that. It's even easier than that. Did, have you guys ever read a choose your own adventure book? Yes. Choose your own adventure book. You don't pay, read page one, two, three, four, five. You read page one until you, you reach the first choice. And then if you have, it's something like if you go in the door on the right, you go to page 20, door on the left, go to page 40. And then so that is what it is, is that Hadios, the concept is that the options that are available to you at any given moment are relative to the permissions and the condition of the system at that moment. It's a choose your own adventure book. So if you take, if you go down one path, you've got a new set of options available to you. And luckily, unlike a choose your own adventure book, you don't die constantly, but that's, that's the, how it works out. <laughs> so would you say the really layman's terms for this really long term, I'm gonna say it all here, hypermedia as an engine of application state 
which is abbreviated abbreviated as H A T E O A S, Hados or Hados, whatever. Hados, Hados, Hados. We'll say hypermedia constraint. These these words they just sound so complicated. But I, would you say that the sort of the root or the 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 essence of that is basically you get an API that returns links, right? That you can click on. Yeah, that you can explore and you can go deeper into the API so without like necessarily having to reference the documentation. Um, GitHub is a fantastic, fantastic example of that. Sometimes make a request to the root of the GitHub API and see what returns back. It's a series of links to the additional resources, and you can make a request to any of those resources. And if you have to authenticate, it returns a 401 uh, must authenticate. It returns, if then you authenticate, it goes ahead and returns all the information all the way down the line. It's a fantastic API for that. That's awesome. Well, a important thing to uh, keep in mind, too, is that REST is, uh, if you choose REST as your architecture, I guess, uh, REST is uh, stateless. You know, it's not like, let's say, you're connecting to an IRC chat room and all the messages are going over the pipe and you have, uh, you know, you have a stream going back and forth and everything you do can affect the state of where things were. Um, in REST APIs, you have to um, you have to communicate, you know, what what the current state you're in and what the next states you can possibly be in are within the bounds of uh, the request response framework. Silence. Silence. <laughs> and, and and rant. <laughs> so we have, I mean, we talked about there's multiple types of APIs, right? So there's REST or RESTful, then there's the HATOs is kind of like the extreme of REST, or as REST people would say, the actual correct form of REST. And then there's RPC style APIs, but uh, why choose why choose one over the other? Good question. You know, actually, I have to jump on that one because I had a presentation where I talked about just that question. And I think it comes down to what you need. You know, uh, I asked one company, like, should you use SOAP or REST? Or like, REST. I was like, well, what if your clients are all used to using a SOAP API? Would it make more sense in that case to use SOAP because they're your clients and that's what they're looking for? So I think it comes down to what your clients need. I, I see somebody shaking their head, but. Uh, <laughs> Matt Frost is making his head. He's like, like no, I hate you. But the other aspect is, what are you going to do? What are the technologies that you're using? And how long do you expect your API to last? Uh, REST was designed to give you longevity with your API. Uh, Hadios was designed to give you longevity with your API so that as you add more things and, and modify it, your API is not getting replaced every two or three months. Um, so I think if you look at best practices, uh, REST offers far more advantages over SOAP or even RPC, and that's decoupled. You're able to be in a stateless environment. You're able to send the data back and forth. You're able to take advantage of multiple content types, whether it be XML, JSON, plain text, HTML, whatever you really want. Uh, it really gives you a lot more flexibility than I think RPC or SOAP would. I can't wait to hear what Matt has to say about that. <laughs> we haven't really defined what RPC is yet either. True. Can you take well, that one real quick? Or anybody? No, I was going to say, uh, actually, somebody can define RPC, then I have something to say. So I think you're going to define RPC. Uh, I don't know if the, what the formal definition of RPC is, but I always just think of it as basically local methods or functions that map one-to-one -one with 
functions or types of behavior that exist in the API. So I don't know if anyone has a better way to describe it than that. It's a remote procedure call. Uh, essentially, if you look at REST versus RPC, uh, REST would be your API slash users, and then you use CRUD to determine what action you want to do. RPC tends to be your API slash users slash edit, and then you make a post call to it. So it's more like REST is more resource oriented, RPC is more mm -hmm. function or feature oriented. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I was just, just going to play, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I, all four uh, REST APIs, 99 REST full APIs. Um, thank you, somebody, for correcting me when I said REST last time. Um, not, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100. But, you know, let's say your uh, APIs aren't always over, you know, over a network, over HTTP. Let's say you are designing an operating system and you're, you need a windowing system where you manage windows and, uh, you know, windowing positions and colors and buttons and uh, click handlers and things like that, you probably don't want to be managing your click handlers with uh, REST calls. REST is probably not the right way to handle event, um, real-time event-driven, uh, you know, architectures like that where everything's existing on the same system. So every REST uh, or RPC remote procedure calls have their place um, you know, I think the bottom line boils down to, are you dealing with, uh, resources? And if you're dealing with resources, then I think rest is the only thing that really makes much sense. And Matt, would you agree, do you, especially according to, um, what Matt, or I'm sorry, what Mike said earlier about, um, sometimes you want to use soap depending on what your client uses. What, what is your response to that kind of thing on rest? Yeah, my, uh, my head shaking was, uh, more of a personal thing than it was, uh, I agree with Mike. I think if, um, you know, I mean, you, you have to work with clients. You have to give them things that they know how to interact with. And if that happens to be um, soap, then I think sometimes you have to bite the bullet and just do that. But it's not, um, it's not my favorite thing to work with. Um, you know, just from a, from a, either from a server standpoint or from a consuming standpoint. It's just kind of... Uh... How, how, how much of that, though, is the fact that uh, if anybody's had, for anybody in the audience who hasn't had to deal with soap before, had the pleasure, um, how, how much of that is because for every soap request, you're, uh, you have like 90% of the message, that's an exaggeration, but a good portion of the message is all boilerplate and envelope right. and... Um, meta information that's not even related to the resource or the function your procedure you're trying to call. It's all um, it's all related to the protocol itself. Right. So, I think that kind of goes back to a question earlier about why people tend to favor JSON as the yeah. uh, way to describe the days because JSON of all the you know options that people have used really has the less amount of extraneous data when uh, you're dealing with APIs. Right. The responses tend to be lighter, um, tend to be a little bit snappier. Yeah, and if, you're consider, if your consideration is performance, uh, which I think for a lot of people it is, um, you know, a, uh, a JSON response is going to come back uh, a lot quicker than, you know, a big XML. And, and in Soap's case, yeah, with all the, all the extraneous information that comes back in one of those responses. Um, right. 
And so request there's also the aspect that we're we're looking at mobile clients and when you're talking about mobile you need a, a payload that's small lightweight and not just for processing purposes but for sending it down the wire because remember mm -hmm. these devices are not always connected and even when they are connected we have to get used to very slow connections so the more data we try to push down the wire the more painful that app is going to be to use and Definitely. so json makes a lot more sense over xml for a lot of reasons there so, so why why json and not uh message pack for instance is that a binary package yeah it's a uh yeah it's essentially if you look at their website it's just it's like json but fast and small which yeah is, well you know what if if your clients go going back to what mike said if you're if that's what your clients use and that's what your clients can handle then go for it um, I, I think at this point, having clients that are supporting that is going to be a little challenging. Um, but having that as an option, you can do that with the content negotiation. Um, it, I think that'd be a really powerful concept. The rest, like the, if you go back to look at Roy Fielding, the, the sort of father of rest and who put these concepts out originally, he doesn't define what the payload is. He says there is a payload, but he doesn't say it has to be XML or JSON or whatever. So I don't care what it is. There, you can have an API that returns images. That's a payload you know, binary, whatever, as long as you're returning something, even a zero byte response, you're all good. The uh, puns in Twitter are, are kind of becoming ridiculous. Of course, Jeremy McCullough is, is the, the instigator of this. He said he gave up on making a SOAP API. He said the whole project was a wash. Oh, knee slapper. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, you spent half your development time cleaning stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> Igor responded, give me a rest. Oh. Um, actually, Lee Davis said, is no one going to mention the Richard Maturity model? Does anybody yes. know what that is? The Richard Mat Richardson Maturity model is an awesome thing. It, it goes through the, the sort of four levels of the glory of rest is sort of the, the top level. And the first level is uh, nouns. Once you stop thinking of things, I'm sorry, the first level is plain old XML, XML over HTTP. Like once you're pushing back XML back and forth, like you're on the first step of having like a, a pretty good API. I would switch that to say JSON now, um, but that would be the only tweak to that. The next level is nouns. Once you start thinking of your API as a series of resources that are interconnected, that have relationships that can be interacted with one at a time, like named resources, that's the next step. The third step is um, verbs using the HTTP verbs correctly, get, put, post, delete, uh, throw head in there as another option. Um, I, I think those are all good things. So you're using a put to do updates uh, or to create something. You're using a delete to delete stuff. You're not a RPC remote procedure call sort of thing where it's like delete user as the command. You're actually using the verb properly. The next level is the hypermedia controls and hypermedia controls are using those links. That's the choose your own adventure book. That's how you can explore your API and do different things with it. And that's sort of what maps to the glory of rest is what it says in the maturity model. Cool. Does that make sense? Does that work for you? It, yeah. I mean, I, that's enough for me to go Google it for sure. <laughs> yeah, that about sums it up. Um, yeah. Let's just uh, take look, a look at a couple of things that you might encounter when you're dealing with, a, with an API. Something like authentication, for example. What are some examples of uh, ways to authenticate a user uh, with an API? Some of the, maybe the best practices and maybe the not so great practices. Well, there's uh, everyone's favorite uh, OAuth, which is, um, let me see how I want to describe this, kind of how it works. Plug on OAuth, so 
I did. It's, it's, it's going to look really bad if I can't explain it, right? It's all you. <laughs> Buy my book, though. So, um, so just, des- <laughs> just describe your entire book in two sentences. Right, right. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll put the, the copy of my book in the show notes. No, um, I'll do it for you, buddy. <laughs> I don't think my publisher would be very appreciative of that. Um, yeah, so basically um, – Right. Uh, OAuth gives you a way to kind of represent yourself to other services. Uh, I, I like to use examples kind of when I describe it. Um, and everyone here is probably very familiar with Twitter. Um, Never heard of it. Yeah. that's a, It's this uh, – it's like Facebook. Wait, um, is it like Chirper? It's like Chirper. <laughs> exactly like Chirper. Except for you get like 60 more characters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um what was I saying? Okay, yeah. So uh, when you want to interact with another service, right, you need to be able to identify uh, who you are uh, to that service in order to get resources that are private, that are protected, that are, you know, kind of your resources, whether those be tweets or direct messages or people that follow you or whatever. You need to be able to communicate with the service and tell them who you are. Uh, so what OAuth does to help kind of bridge that gap is um, – Gives you kind of this model of uh, of access tokens, right? Which which uniquely identify each user, and um, you know you, you would authenticate with the service that you're hoping to connect to. You're identifying yourself to them, and in exchange for that authentication, you're getting back uh, a, a token or a series of tokens, depending on uh, whether you're using OAuth one or OAuth two. Um, and then with those, uh, generally, uh, and I hate to generalize this because every API t- seems to do this uh, incredibly differently, which I can't understand. But generally speaking, what you would do is take that token uh, and put it inside of an authorization header. Uh, well, at least in OAuth 2, you would just pass the token along in the, in the authorization header, and then that identifies you back to the uh, service and can get you the records that are directly yours. Uh, and OAuth 1 is a little bit more complex. You have to create a signature uh, that's a, a lot of fun to create if you've never done it before. You should try it. Would you say that OAuth is kind of a way of creating state in a stateless interface? And what I mean by that is uh, RESTful or API web APIs are often described as being stateless in that you make a request, it returns a response, and then everything's done. Whereas if you have some sort of identifier that you can send to it every single time saying, hey, it's me, it can be like, oh, yeah, I remember you from last time, and send something back that's maybe pertains to the last request. Does, that even, would that even, does anybody agree or disagree with that statement? I think, I think you could do that, but I think generally speaking, uh, that's, that's not a great idea. I think... Uh... You know, you should be able to make any request, you know, over and over again and, and get the same response or the same type of response. Um, item potency. Item potency is, is the word, yes. Item potency. Yeah, yeah. One, of the, uh, one of the core concepts, I'm drawing a blank on what level of Hadios this is, but is that it's uh, cacheable. And returning right. a different response based on the value of sessions breaks that yeah, I, I look at it kind of the same way as I look at content negotiation in a sense that I am, as part of my request, I'm sending information to the server to tell them how to fulfill the request. And if that's, you know, whether that's I want JSON back 
or I'm sending JSON or whatever, um, you know, you're basically just sending more information that gives the server uh, enough information to successfully fulfill your request. Has anybody ever used basic auth to authenticate with an API? Yes. This this decade? <laughs> so basic basic auth is uh, basically authenticating with your headers right that you send, right? Is that would that be the a good really brief description? That's fair. Uh, so that's is you see you mentioned this decade is that kind of old school? Nobody does that anymore or what? You know the the problem with basic auth is it transmits your password in uh, plain text. Um, and even if you're if you're really bad, if you decide to not include your name and password in the uh, headers, you can actually include your name and password in the URL in a basic auth site, um, which then has the nasty side effect of also including in all your logs and every waypoint along the way. If you're not uh, if you're not a uh, over HTTPS. Hey, that'd make it really easy to share your resources with other people, though. <laughs> <laughs> Until your password changes. Then it would be nice if you had some sort of token or something, you know, that you could reuse regardless of if your password changed. If, you, if you're if you behind an SSL, then you're then you're technically not sending it over uh, in plain text, right? You're not, no. But, but, but at if, some if you're point, in the log files, it'll show up. At some point, it becomes decrypted. I think the other danger, too, is with like OAuth 2, for example, you get that token, that token may have certain access rights. So they're able to do certain things with your API, but they can't actually go in and change billing preferences or grab the credit card information. Whereas if you're using the username and password, if their application gets hacked, they know a free reign to their account where they can do anything they want with it. And there's well, no way to say, hey, this is a bad account, let's shut it off because right. there are credentials. Everybody remember when uh, Twitter allowed uh, basic auth authentication? Um, so it, the, this amazing thing happened where you had um, millions of people giving their username and password to completely untrusted third parties, <laughs> which to me is amazing. And I did it because there was no other choice um, <laughs> until they uh, until OAuth became you know the norm because they forced people to not use basic auth anymore. Well, um, so all that's, OAuth seems to be the standard. Is there Another way to authenticate, maybe then there's like a new hipster thing that's that people are doing, or is it still pretty solid OAuth? Well, I think we're we've kind of skipped a whole classification of other authentication schemes. Uh, that being of like you know API, the double key system. I know like AWS uses something like that. Twilio, I believe, is similar in that way, and uh, where you uh, are sending basically data hashed with your secret key, but including your access key as an identifier. Ah, so you're okay. So you talked about uh, a secret um, hash, which is like signing your request, basically, right? So you you take the what you're sending to the server and you sort of encrypt it with this only with this little key that only you and the server know, and you send it across, and that that server can decrypt it with that secret key. And if it if it's able to decrypt it correctly, then it knows that it's a it's a legit thing. Is that what you were referring to? Right. You usually have two keys: one that identifies you, and one that you sign with. Right, and uh, I guess everybody has a little different name for that in Facebook world. It's called the app secret poof, and it uses your app secret to to kind of take that payload and, and encrypt it, and yeah. it's, it's signing your request. Facebook system is very similar. Yep. 
that's a really great way to to lock down the API because if somebody if somehow you're storing all these access tokens that you're getting by authenticating a user that live, you know, sometimes access tokens can last for, you know, two years or something. And if somebody breaks into that database and suddenly they can make requests on your behalf, unless you are um, having to sign all of your requests to the server. Well, then there's the the extreme of that, right? Is uh, I, I think there's an AWS person or something here today, um, you know. But the you know the extreme of that AWS. Yeah, look at the actually, time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let, let's uh, yeah, let's just create a uh, IAM. Um, you know, you can essentially create a dedicated token for every single resource if you wanted to that you want to have accessed and then you only give that token as a very limited scope to the uh, client um, which is uh, you know I, I, I like that model it can be a little difficult to manage sometimes but yeah that that uh, I, the IM system is very similar to the Facebook app keywords you know different key per application or different key, different key per user different key per role you assign permissions to a particular key, and then you distribute that. You only use that with your app. So if it's somehow compromised, you can, one, uh, it has l less privileges than your, your real authenticate, your real credentials, and two, you can revoke it and turn it off right away. Yeah, that, that process and concept isn't horribly different from kind of what um, I'm thinking of OAuth 1 in, in particular, you know, you'd pass along a lot of your, uh, you know, your secret key and your, your actual token and sign your request with that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that kind of key pair thing is, is pretty common. When you get into two, you kind of lose the, um, the user secret, right, the client secret, but you, you still have a, you know, a, uh, an application secret or an API. I forget what they call it. Twitter calls them weird things. They're not like uniform. Um, but yeah, you uh, like like in OAuth two, you would use that that application secret, which is basically identifying your application as you defined it in that service back to the service, and um, you know that 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 allows you to kind of set like in in OAuth one, there wasn't this real detailed uh, kind of access control idea. Built in, and when I say built in, I just mean it into the spec, not into any of the libraries that use it or anything. But um, you know, if you if you look at Twitter when you go in there and you sign up and you create an API, right? You've got like read only and you've got read and write, right? And so the API needs to know how to respond based on the settings that you set up. Uh, with with OAuth two, kind of what you guys just described is you have this idea of scopes. Right, which kind of defines what that key can do in the context of the API, and you know maybe uh, you really only need to read information um, and, and write to a couple of different areas. So rather than opening the whole app up to read write, you've got okay, well you can read everything, but you can only write to you know users or uh, you know the, the GitHub. I agree with Keith. The GitHub API is really nice to work with, um, and they do a really good job of kind of defining scopes. So. And I wonder if they used something like RAML to design their API. This is uh, this is something I just actually recently discovered. Uh, this idea that there's like this RESTful API modeling language or RAML that you can use to sort of kind of I guess wireframe your API almost. Does anybody have any experience with this? That's a nice segue on that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> thank you. 
Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll jump on this at first. Uh, so you said RAML stands for RESTful API Modeling Language. And if you've used Swagger or API Blueprint, it's very similar from a documentation standpoint, with the exception that RAML really wanted to encourage design first. Uh, so you can use it no matter where you're at in your API, whether you're trying to do documentation uh, or whatever. But it's really to say, how do I want my API to look and actually design it visually, be able to prototype it so that developers can try out the different endpoints, get immediate feedback from them, so that you're not starting to write code, puts it in the real world, and then find out it's not what developers need. Um, so I think that's one of the big things with that is saying, hey, we want you to focus on design. Think about your API before you build it. Make sure it's what your developers want to use before you build it. And then also let's encourage best practices. You know, in code, we use things like uh, code reuse and design patterns. We don't do that when we're putting together APIs. Uh, one of the aspects that Rimmel says is, hey, we want you to use resource types or define your resources and then reuse that again and again. And then same with traits, you know, reuse your code again and again. So that's RAML in a nutshell. Awesome. So it's a service that you upload basically a configuration file and it, you're able to kind of talk to it as if you had already created the API? Uh, so RAML is more of a spec. So you oh, actually spec. write RAML and then there are different tools out there. Uh, for example, there's the API designer so that you can actually write your RAML and see in real time what the API looks like. Uh, as you put in your endpoint, you'll see the endpoint on the right of screen. As you put in a get action verb, you'll see get. As you put in an example response, you'll see that example response. Um, you know, there's there's this awesome company, which I don't want to do any advertising on your uh, podcast. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, MuleSoft, of course, uh, offers a free mocking service where taking that RAML file, you click mock it, you can actually pass a link to other developers and they can make co-requests against that link to get back the request. So they can actually do a mock post request or, or mock get or mock patch or mock put or mock delete, see what they get and give you immediate feedback on that API and how it interacts with them. Uh, no, there's the... I, API console, which allows you to have interactive documentation for developers to interact with, and the API notebook, which lets you actually create uh, calls to the API in real time, uh, interact with other services, and then save code uses and examples. Um, so I, I'm a huge RAML fan. I, I could talk all day. I'm actually going to turn over to, to Mr. Curioso, though, if that's okay with him, because I think, uh, you know, when we met at a Northeast PHP, he was telling me, you know, how, how great these different tools were and coming to my talk to mock me, and I, I think he did a pretty good job. I think you mocked me more from the podium than I mocked you from the seat, I think. I don't know um, what you're talking about. You know, I, I don't know. The audience didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, I've actually been, uh, you know, just back up. I've been using RAML for since Mike introduced it to me. I was using uh, Swagger, which is another API modeling language before that. And uh, um, I love it because it's... Uh, a lot more, um, you know, a lot less, uh, you know, garbage. You can kind of get to the point and define your API in a nice hierarchical way that makes sense. And I just want to reiterate what Mike said because what Mike said was great in that, you know, it is, uh, I'm going to put on my engineering management hat for a second. It is so much more expensive, if not downright impossible to change an API after it's already developed. Um, and that's why I hate, I don't want to hate because somebody from Swagger might be listening. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Swagger is really geared more towards documenting an API you've already created, whereas RAML seems to be designed more from the ground up to be able to uh, 
spec out and prototype an API. I think specking out and prototyping your API before you even write one line of code is so important because it changing code is expensive. Changing a spec, not so much. Right, and and actually that's a kind of an interesting thing about versioning an API to begin with, because actually Lee Davis was uh, on Twitter was saying, should I use should I simver my REST API or uh, semantic versioning, which is a way of versioning your code? Uh, should I simver my REST API or different uh, do different rules apply? Um, how do you implement versioning? And it, that was actually on the show notes, and I know we're kind of running out of time a little bit, so I was actually going towards the end of the show notes, but uh, does anybody want to touch on how you might version an API quickly, like some of the way, some of the techniques that people have used to um, to version an API and what the best practices are? Actually, can I jump back a second? I have a, I've got yeah, a totally. response to what Mike said. So um, I, I do happen to use Swagger. Uh, nothing against Swagger, nothing against Raml. I think, Mike, you, you missed something that, Andrew, you started to hit on, is I think Raml is fantastic for prototyping and for building that initial version out there and put, get some feedback, but that's not design. That's not design at all. That's implementation. That's prototyping. I think design should start a couple steps before that, and design should start in terms of what business problem are you actually solving. If you're not solving a business problem with your API, you're doing it wrong. CRUD, CRUD is a starting point. CRUD is acceptable for many APIs. You know, A lot of what we do is fundamentally CRUD, but at, at the same time, an API should be so much more than that. Um, and I, I think RAML comes in the step after that. I think design, um, I actually, like when we did our API, API design at Clarify, we used note cards for the whole thing to lay out individual activities and steps of those activities and then start grouping the note cards to build what the, um, what the individual API interfaces would look like. That and sounds I, I think, a lot like UI design. A lot of times when you're um, creating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like the architecture of your, of your API. Jeremy's wanting it, to say something. Keith, uh, I think uh, your next uh, talk should be called Transcending Your API. That, that can that kind of fit in. <laughs> well, so um, uh, as part of the book, uh, my, my writing partner and I, we do do a 16-hour training course on designing APIs where we talk about this. And we, we go into uh, massive detail about this because I think it's so, it's so fundamental and we miss it so much because as software developers, we want to write code. We want to get to the configuration. We want to get to things and start seeing bits move back and forth. But at the end of the day, if we're not solving real business problems, we're doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I can agree with Keith more on that. And, and just to iterate on the design thing, I, I definitely agree. Uh, if you don't know what the purpose of your API is before you start designing it, before you start building it, you're going down the wrong track. That's a very vital first step. And I think uh, just on kind of like the note card thing, I think you need to have an idea of what your endpoints are going to be, how they're going to interact, what your users are going to do. Uh, I think what RAML allows you to do in, in the design phase is lay out those endpoints, determine what the schema is going to be, how it looks. But you're absolutely right. You need to have that design uh, first mentality. And, and RAML is a great tool. I think I just think it's step two. Cool. So that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a, you know, a good sort of advice, I guess, for all developers who want to just jump right into coding on an idea they have, whereas uh, you, you need to step back about 10 paces and start thinking more about, like, the problem itself and, and, you know, researching with maybe the lean startup strategy and trying to, well, that's a different podcast altogether. Uh, but uh, real quick, really quickly, I wanted to see about uh, uh, versioning and what you guys thought about, like, if you do screw up that design process or, no, I should say if the, if the spec changes, which spec never changes on us, so if the spec changes and later on we need to make a revision and we want to make sure that peop the people who are using our API don't just get a broken 
link when we change something, uh, how do we version our APIs? What's the best practice behind that? The answer is it doesn't matter. Everyone will hit you if you change the version. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, the the like if you go with the the Hadio sort of like that it, that sort of goal, then the proper place to put the versioning is in the contents. Um, the, the media type information. When you're doing that initial content negotiation, where you don't just say I'm expecting HTML or uh, text JSON or application JSON, you say I'm expecting GitHub v3 application JSON. So then the server can say, oh, I know how to speak v3. Here's the data that you want. So then you can also header, specify right? v1, v2. Yeah, it's, then that's all in the headers. That's the sort of the grand high ideal. More realistically, and I. My criticism with that is that not a lot of people know how to work with headers properly, so they make that mistake a lot, and they don't they don't know how to negotiate that very well. So I think the default fallback position is putting it in the URIs, and I think that's the safest because everyone knows how to interact with that. Everyone knows what to do with that. Um, you're not going to blindside people with that. But, I mean, Jeremy's totally right. They're going to get annoyed at you no matter what you do. Just be consistent. God, please be consistent. Right. Um, actually, uh, Jeremy uh, McCullough actually asked a question about thoughts on implementing uh, APIs using maybe uh, micro frameworks. Um, he mentions one called, uh, I don't even know how to say this, API. Ab Agility, there it is, or yeah. Boss Rest Bundle. Um, and I think that kind of ties into where I kind of want to sort of end this thing on uh, questioning how much domain logic of our apps is being moved to the client side to where face uh, for where PHP is basically becoming this sort of permanent state storage, just an API kind of app that we're develop developing in most of our sort of fancy one page appness is happening actually on the client side with new JavaScript frameworks that are like Ember or uh, what's angular uh, react JS, which is amazing. I've been playing with that. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, uh, have you experienced this idea of trying to develop these one-page apps and finding that most of your domain logic is actually happening in JavaScript and you're just using PHP to store permanent state? So Do we uh, I, I could bite on that, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think I've heard a few other people here mention this in talks at one point or another, too, is... Uh, you know the the API uh, the API is not your uh, if you're dealing with REST at least is not really your business logic layer. It's it's your way of dealing with resources, storing them, saving them, the um, CRUD searching and whatnot. Um, you know, and if you I, I can say uh, I can kind of make a blanket statement that if you design your API to be separate from your front end and your business logic from the ground up, you're not going to regret it. Um, you know, somebody's going to email me five months later saying, hey, I designed the API first and now I regret it, you bastard. Pardon me. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, the thing is, front ends change. Uh, designers get different ideas of how things should work. And, you know, you, you do some A-B testing and you realize, hey, this way we did it was completely stupid. We should kind of really redo that. And if all your business logic is tied in with your API and your API is tied in with your business logic and you have chocolate and your peanut butter and, you know, it's all messy like that, it's, uh, you know, it's really, really tough to be agile and really tough to change. So I've, I've done a few apps 
they're all Angular JS front end. I'm a big fan of Angular um, and RESTful backends, and I love them. And I've actually done a few apps that uh, PHP only people, please don't kill me, that have uh, some other language implementing the API, and then PHP on the front end on the server side uh, interfacing with the API, which PHP is awesome at. I think it's one of the best languages at doing that. And uh, JavaScript on the front end. So, you know, they got that sandwich. You kind of have a four-tier system. You have your back, um, you have your back end, your data storage, you have your REST API or your SOAP API or RPC API or whatever you want. You have your uh, server side front end and then you have your client side front end. And doing it that way, you have so much flexibility. Um, what if you want to build an iPhone app, you know? Right. Um, and when you're actually specifically designing your web app, are you finding that your most of your domain logic is happening in the JavaScript? Or is it still kind of a lot of st uh, your HTML and stuff is being generated by PHP using template engines like Blade and Twig and all that kind of stuff? Or is, is nobody's designing one-page apps? Or the first question you need to ask yourself is who your audience is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think de designing a website that's rendered entirely in JavaScript, if you're a blog, is probably not the best uh, design decision in the world. Um, you know, there's no need to require JavaScript and uh, sessions and things like that if you're trying to distribute content. But if you're building Google apps or Gmail or, sorry to keep using Google products, <laughs> um, you know, if uh, I'm trying to think of a non-Google example, I'm drawing a blank, I'm sorry. Facebook, uh, Facebook uses a lot of JavaScript. There, <laughs> I'd say anything anything that sits behind the firewall. If you want search engine optimization, though, um, one-page apps or like things that load individual components as you scroll and interact through the page, that makes it more challenging. So right. blogs I think, are a great thing. But anything that sits behind the firewall that doesn't need search engine optimization, I think, is a candidate for JavaScript. Absolutely. And I feel like, uh, Andrew, you said it earlier, it just depends. That's really the answer for everything, I think. <laughs> but you got to know your audience and if and your client and if those requirements allow you to use javascript um, and put all that domain logic in your javascript then well, yeah most of it depends on um you know what what's right for your customer and what's right for you um except modifying data with a get request in a rest api that's not up for debate don't do that. <laughs> yeah um, so gosh, there's, I'm, we're already kind of running kind of late on this thing and I real there's so much more I had on the show notes. So I just want to make sure to get to a couple more, uh, salient points before we close this thing out. If and there's we run out of time. We could just start shouting out buzzwords. We could. And then just be like, Google this, Google that. Uh, one I really wanted to touch on was API debugging, uh, and how you debug your API. Uh, basically, I want to see what headers are being shown in the back, uh, you know, behind the scenes. How do I look at my headers when I'm designing an API, or how do I look at a header that uh, I'm trying to interface with, uh, say, uh, with uh, real-time updates on Facebook? They'll they have this service that will post to a certain endpoint that you provide, and there'll be a payload and headers and all that stuff that you have to mess with. Is there a place that I could point that to and just kind of see what they're giving me so I can know how to write my script? Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad agree. we cleared that up. On to the next point. Uh <laughs> um, I, I would say uh, RunScope is kind of the gold standard there, and I'm, I'm biased. Uh, the founders of RunScope are all guys I used to work with, um, 
And it's, it sits as a proxy between you and the API and logs everything that you do with the API. It, both your request and your headers that go out and the request and headers that come back. Um, some of the stuff we do for Clarify is asynchronous. And so you can even set it up so that the callbacks from the asynchronous calls, the, the webhooks, get fired to uh, RunScope, and they capture all everything that you just put out. So I'm a huge fan. It's a fantastic service, and I recommend it all over the time. Clarify, right? Yeah. And that's the shirt you're wearing right now, Clarify. Yes, it is. <laughs> How does that differ from something? I'm familiar with RunScope. Is it, is it similar to that? They, they're a service that, that lets you to hit endpoints and gives you... No, we use we use RunScope, but Clarify is um, is my company. We are an API company that makes audio and video searchable. So stuff like podcasts, um, phone calls, stuff along those lines. Oh, nice, excellent. Does anybody else have any experience debugging their APIs with a service or just doing it? So, I, I'm going to be the crazy one um, oh. again. So the I uh, I think uh, there's not much of a substitute for learning um, curl. Command line curl. Um, people are going to think I'm crazy for saying that, but I also use Vim as my primary program editor, so I'm a little have to be a little crazy. Um, good, no Emacs people who want, or at least no one looks like they want to kill me right now. Um, and uh, <laughs> well, you're good. You know, curl is amazing for. Um, uh, curl is a uh, command line uh, URL library uh, for anybody listening who hasn't used it. If you have a Mac or a Linux computer, it's probably already installed, and you can access it via the terminal. Um, but I have yet to meet a API that I haven't been able to uh, integrate with completely through Curl. Um, OAuth 2 starts to get really tricky, but still doable. Um, so if you want to, for example, uh, get the JSON output of a basic GET request, you can just type curl and then the GET URL in there and uh, dash D space dash to dump the headers to standard output. And it will give you um, the full headers, the full body and everything right in your command line. So if anybody's brave, I recommend it. That's actually cool. If you're on the command line, that's a great way to do it. I also use uh, this app called HTTP Client, and that's on the Mac. And it's a neat little way of just kind of sending raw headers and, and getting raw responses back. And I know there's a lot of plugins for Chrome and Firefox that allow you to sort of debug what, what you know, sending post requests and things like that. So there's a lot of resources and tools out there that help you to kind of debug what's going on in your APIs. There's yeah. also one called, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, I always call it HTTPIE. HTTPIE. Cool. It works on your IE browser, huh? No, no, it's a command line tool. <laughs> Just kidding. The kind of, uh, it's not dissimilar um, to what Andrew is describing with curl, but it kind of isn't curl. It kind of <laughs> encapsulates all the. <laughs> It encapsulates all the uh, curl commands, um, so you can run, you know, I, like I said, I call it HadyPy. I'm sorry, guys, if that's not the right uh, pronunciation, HTTPy. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, you can you can type in, you know, HTTPy, get, and then a very similar uh, kind of process to using curl. Just you don't have to know. You don't have to know all the curl flags. You just have to know all the specific 
It's right. Uh, I, I like the subtle implication on their GitHub page that people like me aren't human. <laughs> I'm not sure to take that as a compliment or not. Andrew, what is your th what are your thoughts on curling as an Olympic sport? <laughs> that was that that pun was provided by Jeremy McCola. <laughs> He's been providing puns nonstop. Thanks for all the content, Jeremy. Whoever said I'm that, where I'm from is the official training site of the Olympic curlers. <laughs> right out there. Nice. So uh, one tool that I use a lot is the Guzzle uh, library. What well, Guzzle? What is yeah. that? Guzzle's a pretty cool HTTP client library, generic uh, PHP client for that. And uh, as far as debugging goes, a lot of the time when I'm writing code with Guzzle to, to work with an API, uh, Guzzle has request and response objects that you know encapsulate that data, and you can just echo them, and the toString function prints out the entire request so you can see the all the headers in the body and there's also um, some other things that you can hook up to the client through the event system that'll print those out uh, for you as well so uh, a lot of tools have their own debugging mechanisms there's other uh, like tool proxies like Charles proxy um, uh, Keith mentions something that he used for incoming HTTP requests. Uh, I've used ngrok before, which is really cool for handling uh, inbound requests. Uh, those are the only ones I can think of at the moment. I'm glad you mentioned Guzzle because that was something I wanted to actually ask about, but I'm trying to, I keep trying to like wrap it up, but it's like, ah, there's so <laughs> much to talk about. Um, but Guzzle, you, you can create very easily a interface basically for an API that you're trying to interface with that doesn't have an SDK, for example, right? Like there's a way that you can sort of define, oh, this endpoint is going to return this kind of thing and then make it really easy to implement in PHP. Is that how it works? Yeah. So there's, there's two parts to Guzzle. There's the HTTP client part, and then there's the web service client framework part and they're actually in different packages so you can only get the parts that you want but yeah uh, guzzle allows you to use a uh, simple description that's very similar to swagger where you can define what the api returns and then it knows how to understand that how to work with that api and out of the box guzzle uses curl right uh, with a stream wrapper fallback is that right uh, yeah, the most recent version uh, is does not require curl, but yeah, you, it uh, uses curl by default because curl's got all the cool toys like being able to do curl multi-handles and parallel requests and stuff like that, uh, and that's baked into Guzzle. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with stream wrappers, it's a it's a sweet way that uh, with PHP where you can do a, a function call and say file get con content file get contents and you can put a URL in there and it'll actually make that request for you uh, and that's sort of what you use in a stream wrapper to make requests instead of using curls because a lot of people I think end up developing on servers that come, don't come with curl uh, functionality and with PHP so that's very helpful to just install guzzle and just don't even have to think about it so that's that's my hat's off to actually Jeremy you, you contribute to that and it was written by uh, originally by Michael uh, Dowling right? Michael Dowling so yeah I contribute to it but uh I would ha I would have to say that my contribute my contributions consist of about 0.1 percent. They're smaller, so it's mostly um, Michael Dowling's project is MT Dowling on uh, on Twitter. Cool. Um, and then I'm trying to kind of try to really wrap it up this time for reals because we're moving into this last segment that I really try to add <laughs> to each one. It's something old, something new, something borrowed, and something deprecated. Uh, so as far as APIs go, and this could be about packages or just you know, API design, whatever. What is something old that's been around for a while, but is still awesome? Huh. 
We're also bleeding edge here. <laughs> how about, There's nothing old that's still how about good. Huh? HTTP. Okay, nice. Yeah. Ooh, uh, good well call. Done, well still good. It's still on version one, I hear. Um, one one, I think. Uh, Nineteen ninety one, I think, was when the spec was finalized. <laughs> that sounds right. I liked HTTP before it was cool. <laughs> I like HP. Nineteen ninety five. Chris Harches, who's the grumpy programmer, just challenged everyone uh, on PHP Roundtable to donate twenty five dollars to MT Dowling because Guzzle is awesome, and I tend to agree. Like that, it's just save. Save me tons of time. Uh, just want to give out a shout out. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm in for that. We don't have to dump cold ice water on our head. It's the guzzle challenge. The guzzle challenge. Right, that just sounds weird. <laughs> sounds like a drinking game. Um, oh, it's something that's new uh, in in the AP world, API world, or something that's coming soon. So is there like a sort of this? Uh, uh, spec for something that's coming out in API land that's best practice? Hey, hey M Mr. Stowe, I think that's a softball for you. Is that? Uh, yeah. uh, let's go with Ramble. I like that one. Well, you could say uh, the new HTTP RFCs. Those could came you... out in June. What is it? Uh, their new RFCs for HTTP. So it, it hasn't changed. Like It's not a new version, but they released new RFCs that clarify things. Uh, there, I think, what's what's what was the original one? Two something, two six nine. I don't care, remember. Yeah, anyway, these are all these are all in the seven thousand range. So if you're not looking at one that's seven thousand something, that's not the new one. So you're talking <laughs> about HTTP status codes, right? That are being returned. I mean the entire spec. The entire spec, because I saw something that was saying uh, that gave new HTTP status codes that were something like, uh, you know. Code 800 meant that you're using IE and you suck. Um, <laughs> did anybody see those? I think that was Phil Sturgeon's uh, contributions. <laughs> so I'd, I'd hold them suspect. <laughs> uh, finally, let's have uh, anybody oh. have anything deprecated, know of anything deprecated I, in the API. I wanted to go really quickly, really oh, yeah. out the field for that last question. Oh. Sorry. Do you mind? Do we have one more no, second? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, real time. That is something new that we haven't talked about yet and has nothing to do with REST or SOAP. Um, so I'll just plant, plant the idea of real-time APIs and streaming APIs and web sockets and all that good stuff. Cool. Nice. See big, also big data. Big data, a.k.a. in the cloud, a.k.a. use AWS for everything. I didn't say no. that. <laughs> no, I said it for you. I said it for you. You didn't have to. to people about that one. Um, so what's deprecated in APR land that is uh, that's we're not going to see anymore as far as dealing with APIs. I have something that I hope I never see again, but I will. I don't know if that counts. XML? What? No, no, no. Um, OAuth one. I wouldn't mind seeing that being deprecated in favor of OAuth 2. Yeah, that's a good call. But, like I said, it won't be. Twitter will continue to use it. and. Well, to one step back from that, you have basic and digest auth. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be seeing those in too many uh, brand new I, APIs. You'd be surprised. 
Nice. Well, we've had a lot of a lot of activity on Twitter. I'd like to thank everybody who's been uh, giving feedback. My dance partner is actually watching, and she said, "Talk nerdy to me." So she's she's trying to learn uh, the the ins and outs of programming and what APIs are and everything like that. Um, and actually, if you're in Chicago and you want to do more on APIs, uh, we want to learn more about it. And I think there's a hackathon involved and everything. This September 24th, 25th, and 26th, uh, th this week basically, there's an API strategy conference that I actually don't know a lot about, but uh, who was I talking to? Mike, you said something about it. You're going to be there and speak, right? Yeah, both myself and uh, Keith Case, you'll be there. Nice. I and what is it exactly? Uh, so it's a conference dedicated to uh, API design and practice, um, trying to figure out a strategy around it. Uh, I think Keith and I are talking about API design and best practices that go with it. Uh, but there's a lot of different tracks. So if you're just in learning about APIs, uh, it's a pretty good conference. How much is it? Is, what does it cost to go? A lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, any conference that's not a PHP conference costs a lot. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, if you got a lot of money and you're in Chicago, definitely hit up this conference. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm looking at it right now. It's about 600 bucks, And I suggest everyone go to Mike's talk. It'll be awesome. Is it going to be streamed live, or can I? So I, I appreciate that my talk will not be nearly as awesome as Keith's. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> All right, this is getting weird. <laughs> oh, actually, Ben, ben Ramsey. I'm not uh, sure if these are compliments or backhanded insults. Now. Yeah, no, right. no, I'm, I'm like switching will, the subject because attention. I guarantee you, I will be at Mike's talk. It'll be awesome. <laughs> Seriously, go to Keith's talk. Seriously. Should we clarify? I, I'm kind of on the fence. <laughs> Uh, well, it was. It, this was. I feel like this was a very well-timed uh, API to advertise that for them. Um, but uh, yeah, Ben Ramsey joined us here at the end because I actually invited him on right like last second. He was like, "I want to talk APIs too," so we'll definitely get you on, Ben, uh, in a future episode. Uh, and Steve Rhodes just got in here at the end, so it's like all that all the people are joining us live right here at the end. But that's okay; it's being recorded, so you can go back and watch it. Um, there was so much more I wanted to get to go over. I had the show notes all written up, and just like. Jeremy said in the last episode, I have a lot of show notes, and I, I got to figure out a way to maybe not do such a broad subject so that we can kind of really hone in on one specific subject for a while and kind of just chew on it for a bit. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure this thing out, see where it goes. Uh, but next episode, we're going to be talking about using a framework versus just installing random packages um, and having a couple people on to kind of talk about how they uh, approach this sort of idea because some people are very framework anti-framework, um, and so we'll, we'll see what their ideas are. Um, if you have something you'd like to share about frameworks or packages, then you, you, then you definitely need to be on this panel. So hit me up on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Sammy K. I'd like to thank you, Matt, Jeremy, Mike, Keith, and Andrew for joining us for the discussion. I'm going to give you a, a quick uh, opportunity each to do a shameless plug, uh, something that you want to, um, something that it, just, it could be a personal plug or uh, just a general shout out, whatever. Uh, let's go one at a time. Matt, you got anything you got to shame, you want to shamelessly plug before we, cl we close this thing out? Absolutely. I have a book coming out uh, sometime relatively soon here. It's an OAuth book covering both OAuth 1, OAuth 2 client and server, as well as some security stuff and some actual working examples. So, um, Nice. If you find yourself interested in that or wanting to learn more about how to kind of understand how OAuth works uh, underneath all the abstractions of the libraries you might use, uh, it'll be a good read for you. Nice. I am interested. I might buy that book right now Well, after this, after we're done. Uh, Jeremy, you got anything you want to plug, man? 
Uh, I have nothing to plug that makes me any money. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I will just say, if you haven't checked out the Guzzle Library, uh, check that out. If uh, you are interested in, in AWS, um, talk to me anytime you want to talk. And uh, I also work on the AWS SDK for PHP library. So if you're ever finding yourself using that, uh, you feel free to talk to me about that as well. That is a beautiful library, and I, I've been working on the Thanks. Facebook SDK, and I'm, I'm looking to uh, you guys for inspiration and in how how to do things correctly. I love that SDK. Um, and I should mention, by the way, I'm going to be posting the link to join this Hangout uh, after we get uh, after we close things out. So if you're, if you're watching, you just want to pop in and ask questions or whatever, uh, it'll be kind of... Still be it'll still be being it'll still be aired live, but it won't be on the official podcast. When we put us posted on uh, iTunes. So, uh, Mike, you got anything you want to shamelessly plug? I have tons of things. Um, no, if if you're looking at you know developing an API, work with the API, check out Raml. Uh, if you go to mulesoft.com, uh, it's an awesome company, but they provide an API designer, API console, API notebook, a whole bunch of different tools that you can use to really design your API and then share your API with other developers. And they're all absolutely free of charge. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check those out. Again, it's mulesoft.com. I feel like I should do like one of those commercials like, oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> if you follow Mule Dev, we will send you one of these squishy thingies if you let me know. That looks like a squishy mule. Yeah, it's a squishy mule. Oh, I want it already. <laughs> all right, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, Keith, you got anything you want to shamelessly promote? Yeah, I'd like to throw out the reason why Mike and I were so lovey-dovey is that we're giving a presentation together. So oh, we will definitely be so at each other's cute. presentation. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Yeah, that makes a little more sense to people now. They're not as creeped out. Um, <laughs> I did want to do a plug for my book. I tell people that I co-wrote the book on API design because our URL is literally theapidesignbook.com. So pretty proud about that. We've published the first six chapters. It's a work in progress, so we've got a couple more coming. Uh, probably two or four co more coming. I'm not entirely sure there. I uh, co-wrote it with a guy, a local Austin guy, um, James Higginbotham, who is a Ruby and Java guy. So it's totally language agnostic. Um, so if you're interested in APIs in general, that's a great thing to check out. And um, that's all I've got. Nice. And lastly, Andrew, sorry, you're at the end here, but would you like anything to shamelessly promote? Um, that's a great question. I'd like to, uh, promote MuleSoft for Emily. <laughs> I left, I left my stuffed mule at home. Uh, but no, uh, you know, it's a little old now. It's, uh, four years old now, but I'd like to, uh, you know, give a shout out to expert PHP in my sequel by, uh, by, uh, rocks, um, Wiley. Uh, you know, 2000, 2010 book, but it goes over a lot of uh, PHP stuff, particularly to do with uh, interesting things like writing PHP extensions, but also there's some stuff on REST in there, and there's also some stuff on uh, security and authentication, no OAuth stuff. I hear there's other books for that. Um, you know, and uh, if you happen to be a uh, e-commerce site, if there's any e-commerce people out there, um, I hear that ZiftrCoin, Z-I-F-T-R-Coin.com is launching a API soon that would have something to do with uh, e-commerce that e-commerce people might be interested in. And third, sorry, I have three plugs, I apologize, uh, <laughs> NewHampshirePHP.org, the largest uh, New Hampshire PHP uh, 
uh, the largest PHP group north of Boston and south of Canada. So, nice. uh, well, that's something to brag about there. We might have to come at you with some questions for the Chicago PHP group, see what you're doing right. 150 members, we meet the fourth Thursday of every month. So pretty, awesome. fairly consistent. We, well, this has been this has been a really great talk, guys. I, I really think that um, there's some of these aspects we can tear out, like versioning, and we haven't even got to caching and like modifiers and all this stuff that I really wanted to talk about. Um, but maybe we'll talk about those in a more dedicated episode a little bit later. Uh, but man, Matt, Jeremy, Mike, Keith, Andrew, thanks so much for joining the discussion, and we will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. PHP Roundtable is recorded live using Google Hangouts on Air. If you'd like to get more information about the live broadcasts, visit phproundtable.com. While you're on the site, join the mailing list to get notified about the next live episode. And hey, maybe even join the conversation at the roundtable. We'd love to hear what you have to say. The theme music is provided by Bensound at bensound.com. The PHP Roundtable logo was designed by Clint McManaman, and you can find him at mcmanaman.co. That's M-C-M-A-N-A-M-A-N dot C-O. Thanks for listening. I'm Sammy K. Powers, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.